Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we will be traveling back in time to 2010 and revisiting, or in Gav's case, uh, visiting for the first time, The Social Network, David Fincher's award-winning biopic of Mark Zuckerberg, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, Armie Hammer, and Justin Timberlake, which dramatizes the founding of Facebook. Uh, Given that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook have been in the news so much recently, you might say, we thought it would be a good time to revisit and reassess this film. I saw this movie twice. I saw it in 2010 and then I think again in 2011 or maybe early 2012 and I had not seen it since because it was not a favorite of mine and you had refused to ever see it and I convinced you to watch it. So we have kind of differing perspectives on this that I think will be interesting. Uh, I'm really, I, we obviously talked about this, but I'm curious to hear you sort of actually talk about your experience of watching this for the first time in 2018, because to me, it is such a product of its time in a very specific I way. So yeah, it is. It's like, it's kind of like Inception, like those two yeah. films, like around 2010, were so ubiquitous. And I feel like you still see GIFs and images from this movie. So I've seen so many GIFs of Jesse Eisenberg passing a note in class or when Andrew Garfield yells about his Armani suit in the office. And I have a vague idea of like what happened in the film. I knew there was a kind of court case between Zuckerberg and Eduardo Severin because obviously it's public knowledge, but also because in 2010, this movie had like a massive fanfic fandom. So I've kind of, osmosis, I have read a few of those fanfics when I was in college and you can kind of glean the parts that people felt were emotionally resonating, which is not the same as the actual story of the film. So I didn't really know the story of the film. And it was really fascinating to watch because, I mean, first of all, this film's very overrated, which is basically going to be the thrust of this podcast. (laughs) I quite enjoyed it. Like, it was fine, but it's not really that great. And also it's mostly interesting in the sense of the ways in which it's inaccurate. And it's like, it's not meant to be accurate. Like when you look at stuff that Aaron Sorkin said about his screenplay, he's like, yeah, I've made up a story that's inspired by these things using some factual like documents and stuff. It's so weird that this is basically the most public facing image of Mark Zuckerberg as a character, because it is so completely different from anything resembling his motivations or his personality or anything we know about his public life, which admittedly is not much, but it's like, wow, this is nothing like him. And it was just really interesting to watch, like, from that perspective now. (laughs) Well, particularly because he just did his... I mean, he's appeared in public speaking many, many times over the years, of course. But he just was in public speaking for the longest duration of his entire life a couple weeks ago before Congress for two days for, like, many, many hours. And I obviously did not watch that entire thing because I have a job. But I saw some clips and was keeping track of the testimony as it was happening and it's just comical like it's just hilarious he is a skin crawlingly awkward man yes painfully painfully awkward i mean he just does he doesn't come across as kind of like having you know like average social skills um which obviously is kind of like a nerd stereotype and ordinarily i'd be like don't be mean (laughs) but in this case it's like well also you've destroyed planet earth with your terrible face with your terrible website (laughs) so it's kind of like i don't really feel like i have to feel that much sympathy for this person who is actively doing very destructive things across the entire planet and seems in general to be quite unpleasant personally but it's sort of interesting to see the characterization they have in this film 
which is also a nerd stereotype, but has nothing to do with Mark Zuckerberg because it's like, oh, he's this like fast talking, you know, he's he's unpleasant, but in a Sherlock way. And he's really, he, he has these moments of insight, even though he's not great in his personal life. And I'm just like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> An Aaron Sorkin <laughs> character. That is the answer. This film opens with a scene where he is talking to Rooney Mara. This is a very famous scene that has been quoted many, many, many times. And you're clearly supposed to get from it that he's sort of on the autism spectrum. He's not officially diagnosed in the film, obviously. But he doesn't really get the social cues of what she's saying. He's very rude to her in a way that is, like, he's clearly an asshole, but also that he's just not getting the signals she's sending him. And so I think that's meant to set up, like, oh, he doesn't get it. But then throughout the movie that remains consistently true like he does not act like a socially capable person but as you say the distance between actual mark zuckerberg from what we can tell obviously not actually knowing him and the sorkin zuckerberg who is fairly socially inept but is also in a very different way and is also heavily motivated by being a spurned lover kind of oh my god because i'm just gonna set out the plot because obviously you haven't done that yet and i know some listeners won't have seen the movie um it's set during mark zuckerberg's college years and it tells kind of in flashbacks him in his college dorm of course um thinking of the idea for facebook and it overlaps with him working for other facebook like startups in the college so army hammer plays the winklevoss twins who are these two very wealthy guys who have this idea for a, a website that's similar to facebook and he gets hired to work for them, but he just builds Facebook in his own and like basically screws them. And they take him to court years later saying that they thought of the idea. And then his best friend is Eduardo Severin, who's played by uh, Andrew Garfield. He's, the, he's the, the, the money man for Facebook when they're in college together. So he pays for it. And he's also a lot more kind of socially well-adjusted and charming and nice and gets on well with people and so forth. And then also in the future, he also takes... Zuckerberg to court because they have this big falling out and he's like I want my money and you know it's all these kind of legal disputes and so it's like you have these two court cases in the present where he's all embittered and then you have him as like a kind of up and coming new star but the whole motive for him starting Facebook the film is very keen on this idea of him first of all as a misogynist and secondly is like he just really you know he wants to get interest from this Rooney Mara character who breaks up with him at the beginning of the movie who isn't really someone who exists like he, he did write a blog post that was really unpleasant about some girl in college but he's been in a relationship with the same woman since college like this other woman who he's now married to in real life and she just doesn't appear in the film they've deleted her from his narrative and instead it's all about the relationship between him and Eduardo Severin and then also him trying to get back at this Rooney Mara character and trying to get her attention and generally being really sexist and he wants attention from the kind of members only like the harvard equivalent of frats so he really wants to be on the inside with all these rich guys but he's too nerdy and not cool enough and it's like none of this really gels with why anyone like built this website but they felt the need to give it this narrative that fits within our image of what nerds want well right (laughs) and so the whole as you say the whole thing is framed around this sort of opening scene with Rooney mara and then throughout the movie there are these constant comments about how like 
well, why does anyone do anything or any man do anything? It's like to get women, blah, 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 blah. They wind up once they've launched this successful website, like these girls kind of hit on them and then give them blowjobs in a bathroom, which is a scene that makes me just like flames come out of my face. This film like is very weird in terms of gender issues because Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher, I've seen, well, we've both seen a lot of their work and they both want to do kind of commentary about shitty men and sexism and I think David Fincher is kind of somewhat better at that like he made Fight Club and Gone Girl both are really interesting and like fun to watch as well as being kind of commentary on toxic masculinity and like gender roles and what have you and Aaron Sorkin is more kind of like he really thinks that he's like this you know feminist whatever but you know he made The West Wing he obviously everyone loves C.J. Craig but he's also like a fucking douchebag and like he routinely he has a lot of kind of sexist like themes in his material where it's one of these like Stephen Moffat situations where the more of his shows you watch the more you notice like the rhythms he gets into they're really unpleasant and in this film Rooney Mara is obviously the only female character who is like remotely kind of like oh cool a good female character but she's very much a mouthpiece for Aaron Sorkin's like very vociferous views of this nerd character being a toxic asshole and then all the other female characters are either groupies or for exposition. So Rashida Jones has the worst role, which is she's a lawyer in the future scenes. And she's just there to ask exposition scene um, stuff to get him to explain stuff. And they'd just be like really nice to him and be like, I really don't think you're that bad. You seem like a nice guy, really. And it's like, what the fuck is she doing here? She does not seem like a person. And the other characters are these groupies. And the two girls from the blowjob scene, one of whom becomes Eduardo Severn's girlfriend in the latter half of the film, there are these two really attractive, kind of wearing a lot of makeup Asian girls. And I was just sitting there like, how much must it have fucking sucked to be like an Asian American woman in 2010 and hearing every guy tell you how great this film is? Because it's just offensive. I just, I was just cringing. <laughs> well, that character, and I remember that it still makes me angry, but I remember at the time, so I hated this movie when I saw it. And it made me so infuriated because this is the sort of thing that happens with the Oscars, right? Like when a movie gets so critically lauded and you don't like it, that it proportionally, like you becomes your least favorite movie of all time. Yeah, because I'm like, this film is fine, but I can totally see why you'd be pissed. First of all, it doesn't deserve a screenplay Oscar. It's oh hilarious, God. but... It got, it got an Oscar for the worst thing about it, which is just comical. But um, Eduardo's girlfriend, who's played by an actress called Brenda Song winds up being this like crazy bitch who like lights something in his apartment on fire and won't leave him alone and I was like what is going on like why is this in this movie I don't yeah, know there's no reason for her to be there right there's literally she does nothing for the story except to be like women are kind of nuts I guess like yeah because like in the first half of her story she like she's like t super horny for these smart guys who are suddenly really rich so she's kind of a groupie and then they get into a relationship and she's there to like nod and sound really impressed when they say, say smart stuff. Right. And then she vanishes for a while. And in the next scene, it's like, you, you have no idea how terrible and abusive this woman is. She's an absolute psycho. And then she shows up and sets fire to stuff and is just this manipulative, horrible person. And it's like, well, if you were going to give him like a bad relationship, cool. But how about we have like some development here so it actually makes any kind of coherent sense? <laughs> or has any relevance to the plot no, of the film. No, it's completely, which yeah. Which does not. And so you just get the sense that the only way that Aaron Sorkin conceive of men behaving and 
his recent film Molly's Game with Jessica Chastain, which we do not need to discuss in any detail, but it follows similar patterns, but from a woman's point of view, because Chastain is the main character. His only way to understand behavior is through gendered interaction, right? Like he can't grasp that Zuckerberg, who I don't know why Zuckerberg created Facebook, right? Like who fucking knows? He actually is kind of an interesting public figure in that he's a bit of a black box. He's just so weird that... Yeah, I mean, he basically built a moat around his house and pissed off all his neighbours because he's so obsessed with privacy, which is, of course, as everyone knows, deeply ironic because his entire career is like, let's get rid of privacy. Right. (laughs) And so, like, I don't know what motivated him. And this film sure as fuck doesn't because the only thing that Sorkin can imagine is like, oh, obviously he wanted wanted to sleep with chicks. It's like, that's not accurate. We know that's not accurate because one of the few things we actually know about him is that he and Priscilla Chang, I think, were... Uh, Priscilla Chan, I think. Chan, yes, thank you. Were dating from the inception of this website and now are married with children. So, like, what? And this is ironic because... He inadvertently wrote a story that is definitely a romance, but not the romance that he thought he was writing. It is structured, like, quite explicitly as a romance between Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Savarin, to the point where, like, at one point, Andrew Garfield shows up outside Mark Zuckerberg's rented house in Palo Alto in the rain you know, his hair is matted on his face and he's just... Like, Andrew Garfield is such a dreamboat. (laughs) He has so many feelings. (laughs) So, I will return to my previous comment in one moment, but what was fascinating to me upon rewatching this was that, and I had sort of acknowledged this at the time, but I think, and again, it's funny that this one's screenplay, but this is an unbelievably well-executed film. The craft of this movie is just astonishing. Like, David Fincher got nominated for an Oscar for directing this and lost to Tom Hooper for The King's Speech, which is absolutely farcical. Like, he should have (laughs) won an Oscar for this. It is astonishingly well-directed. The music by um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, I believe, is unbelievable. It is incredibly watchable because it just goes along at this, like, very fast pace. And the acting across the board is so good. So Yeah, I mean, I've been ragging on Mark Zuckerberg's characterization, but Jesse Eisenberg is so good. I mean, he's good in everything. I'm a huge Jesse Eisenberg fan. I love him even when he's playing Lex Luthor. But it, like... Um... You no, know, he's great in this movie playing the character as written, right? So everything about the movie is incredibly well done. It's just that it's well done around this core of shit, which is really unfortunate. But... Andrew Garfield specifically is even better than I had recalled, which is interesting because he is one of my very favorite actors. I love him so, so, so much. And I think probably I remembered this this way because I had watched a couple movies with him that summer, like tiny, tiny films that he had been in in England that I think aired on television. One was called um, Boy A, which I recommend to anyone. It is so good. It was his first leading role. And then he did one of the Red Riding films, which was this trilogy of movies about this serial killer in Yorkshire in the 70s. And he was the lead in that also. And I was like, this guy is going to be a movie star. Like, this guy is so amazing. And then The Social Network came out in the fall. And 
he's like a supporting character in this movie, right? And I was like, oh, he's really good in this too. And then I rewatched it and I was like, oh, he's amazing in this movie. Like he is clearly the best part of the film. And he actually looks so good that I was really moved at the end of this movie that I do not like, which is a real feat. Like congratulations for having achieved this. But the reason it works is that the core of this film, which I don't think that Sorkin, and I don't know about Fincher, but it doesn't really seem like it, who knows, is this relationship. And I think Garfield knew it, but it's unclear about anybody else. And it is literally a like love triangle. It's unbelievable. It's so compelling. And also like it's really like completely hinging on first of all the structure of the film which is like it's an interesting structure and it's all about unreliable narrators what have you and also obviously the performances but initially there's no way to like make it make sense that people spend time with the Mark Zuckerberg character voluntarily never mind are really emotionally attached to him because the idea that he's managed to be in like a relationship with the Rooney Rooney Mara girl is like why (laughs) because Rooney Mara is really beautiful and she's like this really like seems like a really normal and quite like politically self-aware well why would she be getting together with him anyway when he clearly can't even like be likable um and with Andrew Garfield's character he is on board from day one And it's like they're what meant to be like 20 or something or like 19. And it's like, I get that people have like friendships that are kind of just formed because they're in the same dorm room or whatever. But why is he ride or die for And you completely buy into it. But as soon as you think about it, it's like you've never had the initial part of the story where you see why anyone likes Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) <laughs> so it's like why does this doesn't make sense at all and it's like it makes sense if this person's in love with him but it's like why is he in love with him well i guess we just have to believe andrew garfield's performance because that's the only way to like make this work <laughs> and it's a good performance so it does work like that's what makes it function is that he's so persuasive he gazes it so at him so adoringly that you're just like oh okay and there are a couple of moments where jesse eisenberg looks at him in a way that's like oh there's like, I see, there's something weird going on here, which is why everyone wrote a bunch of fan fiction about it. Yeah. Um, but you're right. But textually, he is never nice to him, even one time, even slightly. Yeah. He's always horrible to him continuously. Well, this is what's so fascinating about the movie to me, right? So Army Hammer plays Cameron and Tyler Winkle- Winklevoss, who are the two... Fucking hilarious. Loved it. So, but this is the thing. So they're the two... Um, twins who came up with this idea for the Harvard connection, LOL, which then they claimed Zuckerberg stole from them. And he had to settle whatever. They were sort of rich rower jock types. They later went to Oxford to do postgraduate work and were there when I was there as an undergraduate, which is extremely comical because this was the year that the movie came out. And everyone talked about them constantly. I never laid eyes on them, but it was literally just like constant stream of what the Winklevi are doing. Have you seen the Winklevi? And they used to go on, um, there's a thing at Oxford called crew dates and like there'll be eight people on like a, in a boat on like a crew team. Right. And they will all go on dates with either another boat or just like eight girls or guys depending on or mix depending on what the boat is and that sounds really gross but often it's just like very (laughs) casual like it might not be romantic at all like it might just be like oh you're just getting together with people but sometimes it is weird I never went on one but like I remember someone I knew being like I went on a crew date with one of the Winklevi on the end last night and I was like what what's going on like 
So this movie was just this like absolutely preposterous. We were all like, oh my God, like what is happening? And he is really funny in the movie. He's really entertaining. And it was absolutely hilarious post Call Me By Your Name to watch this and see him twice in it. Like we were like, I was just like, what is happening? But there is no reason for him to be in this film. Every time there's a scene with him times two and Max Minghella, who plays an Indian man, despite the fact that he is not Indian, which is very unfortunate. It's like, why? There's no reason. And this gets back to like Sorkin thinks he's making this legal drama about Mike Zuckerberg and his blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, we don't care about this. And he uses his potential like screen time, right? On the Winklevoss stuff. Instead of, for instance, explaining why Mark and Eduardo have this relationship or going deeper into that or doing more with the love triangle between the two of them and uh, Justin Timberlake sublimely performed Sean Parker. I do not care for Justin Timberlake. It's been all downhill for him since this movie. But oh boy, does he do a good but job. But he's perfectly cast as a douchebag. Right, exactly. He's playing a horrible man in this and he does it very convincingly. <laughs> so... There's a lot of bad kind of Aaron Sorkin speech scenes in this movie, but I think the worst dialogue scene is with the Winklevi when they're in, they go to Oxford for a race or they go to England for a race. It's Headley on Thames, yeah. Right. They're at like the post-race party full of cartoonishly posh English people. And then like this guy who's like out of Jeeves and Worcester is like, I say, have you heard of this website called the the Facebook? And then they're just like, they're just like, God damn it, I've got to take this man to court. And it's like, this is the hugest pile of garbage ever. So bad. <laughs> it's like pure, just, oh God, so cheesy. It's that scene and they have this big like, rowing thing that's clearly just an excuse for Fincher to show off that he can direct or whatever. I mean, it looks great. It looks great. Lots of melodramatic rowing to like Hall of the Mountain King right. or something. <laughs> but you just think, like, why is this in this film? Also, I can tell you from having been at Oxford, nobody gives a fuck about Harvard's performance at Headley on Thames. Like, this is yeah, I mean, not I, like the idea of anyone caring about anything apart from Oxford and Cambridge. Right. Like, Those are the two rowing team. I wasn't even aware that there were like American teams coming over here. <laughs> this is not a thing. I mean, like. Yes, they go, but no one gives a flying fuck. Like, Jesus Christ. And so you just think, again, like the allocation of time, because this isn't a miniseries, it's a two-hour movie, so what are you doing? It's really interesting to me. So regarding the early period of the production process, like when they kind of got Sorkin to write the screenplay, did he pitch them the time period it would be about and write the screenplay? Or did the studio go we'd like you to write about the inception of Facebook. Um, as far as I know, he was talking to Eduardo Saverin, who'd written, written, I assume, had a ghostwriter as well, a book about this. I don't know how they got hooked up, but... Right. Because it's kind of interesting from like a fictionalization perspective. In some ways, I kind of get, I, I have sympathy for Sorkin, because he has to make an action-packed dramatic thriller that is based on a handful of live journal posts and court documents about a website. And he has no understanding 
of the internet or technology. (laughs) And he has literally explicitly in his work done a bunch of different like storylines and stuff like the newsroom and even back to the West Wing, which is literally about how bad social media and the internet both are. Like he doesn't use social media. He doesn't understand internet culture. He thinks it's terrible. So it's like, he's a very peculiar choice for this. So he is very negative about Zuckerberg and Facebook in general and portrays him as this terrible person, but not in the way that any other person would do because nowadays, if you're going to be doing something that was critical of Mark Zuckerberg, it would be quite politically on point. And this is just like irrelevant to anything. But he has managed to create a narrative that makes sense, apart from the whole like having no resemblance to reality thing. <laughs> well, this is what's so fascinating about this movie, watching it now. And there's a great essay by Zadie Smith that you can Google. It's in the New York Review of Books called Generation Y. It's also in her book that just came out called Feel Free about this film that came out at the time, obviously. And I remember reading it then. It was it went around on the internet at the at the time. It was a sort of big thing as essays go. And reading it after watching it now was also fascinating because she completely gets the movie and also is much more prescient than the film is about what mm. the internet is and what Facebook really is going to become. And her observation about Fincher and Sorkin is that they are web 1.0 people making a movie about web 2.0 people and that they don't understand what they're doing, which is absolutely correct. And she also then has some comments that are not massively elaborate, but are way more than this movie ever gets into about like the future of advertising and Facebook and the future of sort of privacy on the web that are now what we're dealing with, obviously in much on a much grander scale. This movie, the whole conflict in a sort of concrete, practical way in the second half is that Eduardo Saverin is trying to get advertisers for the site because he wants to make money. And Sean Parker, rightly, although in a dickish way, is like, no, you need venture capital because this is going to make you a fuckload of money. And Mark is like, I don't want to advertise. I don't want to be a business. I am a pure soul about my product, blah, blah, blah. And... Like, he, the fact that the whole thing is about Mark Zuckerberg being like, I don't want to advertise on Facebook in light of recent events is just, like, hilarious. It's, like, absurd. Right. <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure, like, in 2010, like, people were using Facebook. Facebook had ads then, right? Right. But, I mean, this movie takes place in 2003, so. Yeah, I know. But, like, the people watching it would just be like, what? Right. Exactly. <laughs> and you, well, right, because, like, you read in the essay that, she already is talking about the ads on Facebook. Like It definitely had advertising by that point in a different way than it does now, admittedly. But there's just no consideration in the film of how putting all of our data on the internet, A, just like the privacy concerns, which even at the time, I remember being very paranoid about that. And when we... so. In the wake of all the Cambridge Analytica stuff, one of the things that was going around on the internet, I'm sure many of you have seen this and then done it, was you could download your Facebook archive and see all the information they had about you. And people were seeing that they, you know, Facebook had like all of their cell phone records, which was disturbing because obviously Facebook shouldn't have that or various other personal details. And I downloaded mine and I obviously don't know if Cambridge Analytica has my information, but I was always so paranoid about Facebook having my stuff that actually it was not that disturbing what was in my archive because I clearly from the first day was like, no, you will not like change my privacy settings every time there was anything, right? But 
I remember that always kind of being a conversation around Facebook was the privacy stuff. Like this has been a thing from minute one of that website existing. And well, this, this, the, basically the way Aaron Sorkin has connected with the material is just to do the exact equivalent of like, if it was a film made in 1980, that was about, you know, about like a Wall Street company. Yes, exactly. So it is just like a business drama and it has, there's absolutely, like you don't really see people using the internet. No, there's some coding scenes where, and like, to be fair, it's hard to dramatize coding, right? Like, that's yeah. just, and they, but so they kind of throw in a little bit of that perfunctorily and then don't really do much with it. But also just like the existential question. And again, Zadie Smith writes about this very well in the essay, which I recommend people read of like how this changes us as people to live this much on the internet, which goes beyond just Facebook, obviously, because like I at this point spend almost no time on Facebook, but spend a lot of my life on the internet. That is not something the film is interested in engaging with whatsoever. And it's kind of almost comical that this like, you know, the definitive Facebook movie is not remotely interested in a, the specifics of the privacy or advertising questions of Facebook, which now are the sort of central issues of Facebook as a website or B the broader technology questions of like just fundamental humanity issues how is the or world even changing, the financial right? stuff, Because it's just really amusing that they, they put it as this clash between do we want funding or do we want advertising? Because one of the things that Silicon Valley, the sitcom, does really well, which we've done an episode on it and you should listen to it because it's great. Silicon Valley explains really clearly to the layperson the concept of angel investors in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. like the whole thing where it's like a company is just given an essentially arbitrary value where people are like, yes, Twitter is worth this number of billion dollars and we're investing in it. And they're basically getting given money by super rich people. But the website itself is not making money. Right. And, and never Uber will. Is obviously, yeah, it's like Uber is obviously the most famous one because it's like Uber doesn't profit but um, the only way in which it can succeed is by massively underpaying its employees who are not described as employees because they're like, they're contractors. And then also completely destroying the taxi cab industry. And if they do that, then it's kind of the equivalent of just like early 20th century union busting. And then they can have people, you know, getting paid below minimum wage in a really unsafe work environment while the company owners are getting paid by billionaires because they've, they're seen as a tech company. It's like, you know, Facebook is a tech company. Most companies that are seen as gi- tech giants are not necessarily tech companies. There's something which is working on the internet, but is doing, is like providing a service. Right. You know. Yeah. I mean, the com- Silicon Valley comparison is the obvious one. And it's really fascinating to look at those two things. Silicon Valley started it would have been silicon valley's in its fifth season five years ago yeah. right so that would have been five years after the social network came out and i do not think silicon valley is a perfect show although i love it and enjoy watching it very very much but its grasp of the culture yeah of it's very well these, researched it's, yeah. it's observational satire and so it's kind of the equivalent of like veep Yes. So the comparison I kept drawing in my mind was House of Cards and Veep, which many, many critics on the internet always said, like, people think that House of Cards is what Washington, D.C. is like, 
And it's actually like Veep. Like, it's ridiculous to think that any politicians actually are behaving like the sort of scheming mastermind politicians of House of Cards. Like, no, nobody acts like that. Everyone is just like an incompetent, bumbling asshole like on Veep. And the idea that, like, obviously there are evil rich men in Silicon Valley doing horrible things. Like, that is a given. But the sort of, like, serious dramatic way it's depicted in the social network versus the just like comical fumblings of all the characters on silicon valley it's like i think that's probably more what's happening out there on a day-to-day basis than the sort of like jesse eisenberg's kind of evil expression during most of the social network right the social network buys into the whole kind of rise and fall of titans like yes this is like so impressed and it's like obviously mark zuckerberg is a titan he is one of the most powerful people in the entire world but at the same time silicon valley feels more authentic because it does actually just admit that these people are all just they're buying into something that's just completely imaginary and nonsense and like the entire culture that makes people billionaires from inventing a website that's not unprofitable is like weird and culty just very silly and a lot of them are just very they're just like very kind of dorky characters and like whenever you read any kind of like journalism about like serious journalism about silicon valley it's a combination of like the same power struggles and business stuff that you've heard for like hundreds and thousands of years like it's just the same it's like oh they've exploited some women like big shocker but it's also just like they're fucking like low dweeb nerds (laughs) yeah i mean it's the cool sean parker character from this movie justin timberlake character who's like yeah he's like charming manipulator like in real life his like latter claim to fame is he like destroyed this massive kind of area of woodland because he wanted a lord of the rings themed wedding that he wanted ian mckellen to officiate as gandalf (laughs) <laughs> it's just like you're fucking dream oh my god it's amazing well, the combination the... of environmental destruction and just being a geek like... yeah no well also the other sort of hilarious thing about watching this movie after having watched many seasons of silicon valley is that the central relationships of them are like the same yeah, because Silicon Valley is a romance yeah. between this horrible, like, repulsive character and this incredibly loyal, lovely man. But in that, it's, like, explicitly part of the canon. Right. And you are just like, why is he in love with him? But it's also really compelling. Well, right. <laughs> and what's different about that is that it's on purpose. And yeah. I was thinking about this the other week, watching Silicon Valley. There's an episode recently of Silicon Valley that was explicitly structured as like a soap opera romance. Like it, like actually, like there was a music cue at one point that was like a soap opera y music cue. In a oh my god, which way. one was that? The one where um, Richard is cheating with the COO of the other okay. company. So basically, he winds up supposedly he's supposed to hang out with this other CEO for social reasons and then he winds up meeting the COO of this guy's company and they like clandestinely meet and then the COO is gonna leave his COO for Richard and like it's this whole like it's a big drama and it like it literally is structured like a romantic drama in a way that is on purpose in a it's hilarious it's really funny and at one moment when there's like a a dramatic scene between them this sort of like cheesy dramatic music like kicks it in the scene and I was just cracking up but 
the woman who directed it, she has directed tons of episodes of sort of like female centric shows, right? And what's fascinating about that show is that at the beginning, it was like, basically, all the people working on it were men. And at this point, there are a lot of women writing and directing on that show. Well, the director we're talking about is known for lesbian rom-coms. Like, she directed But I'm a Cheerleader, you know? Uh, yeah, and directed episodes of Girls, which obviously is not uh, lesbian-focused, but was, like, there were a lot of, a lot of women on that show, right? Um, and so the way that that influence has manifested on Silicon Valley is not having more women on the show, which is one of the show's kind of issues that will never be solved, but instead just making it super homoerotic, right? <laughs> like, it's yeah. very, but very it's also homoerotic. Like the, kind of, the, the way in which, like, Silicon Valley works as a male-dominated show, because the whole point is that it's a really male-dominated environment. In season one, it was like, okay, the female characters are not great, and then they kind of figured it out, and they do have some female characters in every episode and like a few supporting characters that come in but like it's built into the concept that they are in an environment where there's just like zillions of men who only ever interact with other men there's like there's one episode where like they hire like one woman to work as a coder at their company and they like can't figure out how to do the like diversity policy and she's just like really long-suffering and funny about it and it's basically trolling them like making them think they've done something offensive to her it's just very kind of well observed whereas if you were like oh here's like a 50 50 gender split in this company you'd just be like like this is like a progressive company and therefore the satire doesn't work anymore because it's meant to be about these guys who are basically living in a frat house at the age of 30. Yes. I still think the women on the show could be better written because I don't I think mean, they're yeah. very well written. But I think that the way they handle the men is very, very smart and sharply observed. Yeah. It's different from when shows are just like, coincidentally, everyone in this show is a man. Like, everyone who's important and has a storyline is a guy. And it's like, that's just because the writers are sexist and they don't understand that women need storylines. But with this, it's like they've acknowledged the the kind of the genesis of these people's personalities is completely inextricably linked with the fact that they don't interact with women on a personal level ever. Right. And the four main characters, four, because now TJ Miller is gone. Haha. Um, <laughs> Rest in peace. Right. Are, are both structured as couples. And the the sort of main couple is like explicitly romantic in nature without being sexual and it's very funny and again deliberately done versus the social network where obviously Sorkin knew when he was writing it that this was the sort of main emotional sort of pull of the film but it doesn't seem like he really got it and when you're watching Zuckerberg in the movie, like he clearly is an asshole, but I think you're supposed to get off on him sort of shooting down the less intelligent characters. Like you are not supposed to root for the Winklevoss twins in this movie, right? Like they're just <laughs> douchebags. And I was watching it being like, wow, I you know, kind of rooting for the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, no, you are you are the anomaly in this situation. <laughs> I, um, I mean, obviously I knew that was not the thing I was meant to be having, but I was just like Army Hammer seems fun. <laughs> and, I mean, you're not supposed to root for Zuckerberg when he's screwing over Eduardo Saverin, of course. Mm. But when he's kind of going on his, like, Sorkin-esque, like, monologues, they are well-written Sorkin monologues. Like, you're supposed to enjoy it. And there is this kind of, he's a genius thing going on that is just like, man. I mean, the know? overlap with Sherlock is so yes. obvious. Although this came out first, but men yeah. have always done this, so 
But yeah, it's an extremely apt comparison. It's a very, very similar dynamic. And also, I might add, like, the reason, part of the reason why I feel free to just be ragging on Aaron Sorkin for this entire show is I've watched almost everything he's ever done. <laughs> you know, I did, like, I grew up on, like, the first show I saw was Studio 60, which obviously is, like, not his best work. I loved The West Wing. Now, if I watch The West Wing, I'm just like, this is disgusting to me. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not my politics now. I'm just, like, burn it to the ground. <laughs> but, but, like, you know, obviously he is, like, really talented, but he just has so many blind spots and he has so much more creative freedom now than he did before because he's, like, this powerhouse. And he takes on material he shouldn't be doing. The more, the better you know him, the more interesting it is to critique his work, I think. Yeah. Well, and what's frustrating about him is that sometimes he will do really bad dialogue. Like the, like, have you heard of the Facebook thing? It's like, oh, no, please stop. There's, like, at the beginning of this movie, there's a point where, like, you know, Jesse Eisenberg literally, like, twiddles his hands in the air and is like, let the hacking begin. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. But then at other points, he'll write dialogue that is really fun. And obviously, mm. it's it's all very fast. The, the scene where the very famous scene where Eduardo is having a crisis because he accidentally fed the chicken he was carrying around for his hazing induction and fed it chicken is really a classic and iconic moment. I was literally like laughing hysterically on my couch watching it this time. So there is a sort of superficial pleasure in listening to a lot of it. And I think I found this movie very watchable this time, despite generally not liking it very much and a lot of that is down to Fincher and the actors of course but some of it is that a lot of the dialogue in this is totally very listenable but when you stop and think about it for more than five seconds you're like "Mm, this is completely toxic repellent garbage and ethically inexcusable so I mean this movie still gets put like at the top or near the top of like you know, best of the decade, now best of, like, the, you know, century list of movies. Gone Girl is so much better. I do not understand. It's so baffling to me. so much better. I think the direction of this movie is superior to Gone Girl, but I think Gone Girl as a film is obviously, like, clearly better. It's so fun. Yeah. (laughs) I don't... Well, and it's interesting to me that, like, seeing the sort of comments on Twitter about this during the the hearings a couple weeks ago and then after there were a couple people who were sort of like, man, I wish they'd made this now, but I saw way more people being like, wow, the social network is like, it's so relevant. And I was like, it's not relevant at all. It this, was not relevant. This, it's like, that's, that's such a weird opinion to have. Cause I would have thought that as soon as you see the hearings, you're like, wow, this bears no resemblance right. to the film I watched and enjoyed 10 years ago. Like there was no overlap. Like if you enjoy the social work network, like that's fine. I'm not really going to have like a big judgment on someone for that. This isn't a film where I'm like, oh, make or break. You're just a douchebag for liking it. But if you think that's similar to reality, it's like just not. That's like a factual statement. Even Aaron Sorkin will be like, yeah, I heavily fictionalized this to make the kind of narrative that I personally find interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like how historical dramas work. <laughs> it's really fascinating. Exactly. He made a bunch of shit up because that is how historical dramas work, but he was making it up five, five years, years after it happened. <laughs> which I remember at the time finding very ethically dubious. And now it's sort of like, well, I don't feel that bad for you because you're cl- you've ruined society. But I still find, like, I don't think this was the wisest choice because we, we, it was too early. (laughs) Well, there's still basically no good media about the internet, you know? Yeah. We've had two biopics about, like, the two big men of the internet because there's this 
And then, well, there's no, there's the Snowden biopic, which like we haven't watched and just looks like an absolute B-movie. And then there's the Benedict Cumberbatch, um, what's his name? Julian Assange. Yeah, Julian Assange, which I did have to watch for work and is just appalling. It is an incompetently made film where Benedict Cumberbatch is, you know, he's trying, but he's playing like a Benedict Cumberbatch role and he needs to just do more roles that aren't Benedict Cumberbatch roles because they're not good roles. Um, But it's appalling. And like just those films, obviously, it's like they're trying to like repackage quite complicated political material into a palatable biopic format which yeah. just you can't do with contemporary characters like everyone should just watch the Edward Snowden documentary which is great exactly but um even just general pop culture like there's such a tiny minority of tv shows that understand how social media works and can depict it because like obviously you can't just sort of show a screen which is difficult but you know you have to understand how phones and the internet work because everyone fucking uses them and no one knows how to write it into their screenplays yeah, at some point, I guess we'll hit that point, but it has not arrived yet. I mean, The Good Wife and The Good Fight can do it. Yeah. And some teen dramas can do it. Like, obviously, Scam is the one that, like, every, like the, the Norwegian teen show is, like, great at it. Because that's kind of the whole premise of Scam is that it works on social media. But, you know, shape up. Yep. We'll see. We'll see how long it takes for culture to, to catch up. Yeah. <sighs> But yeah, I mean, if the if the Roseanne people were any good, they just do a whole sh- series that's about how Roseanne <laughs> got radicalized on Facebook. Oh my god, yeah, if, in a different world. Well, I did actually have fun rewatching yeah. this, which was more than yeah. I, I mean, I, I found it enjoyable. Like it was selling. Yeah, I love Andrew know, Garfield, so that was fine. <laughs> it did. I I was very melancholic at the end, which surprised me. And I think that that you know the actors the actors were good. Jesse I mean, Eisenberg it's just very weird face. that the final shot is is Mark Zuckerberg refreshing the Facebook page oh of Rainer Mara's character. Because I'm like, who is she? Like, this isn't oh this God. isn't a person in his life. And what? Well, again, I mean, we'll we'll wrap up in a minute. But this the the end scene with him and Andrew Garfield, like the scene where they have that fight, is like a legitimately great scene in the the decade of of filmmaking that we're yeah. in. It's incredible, and it made me really really moved and sad and then they're like oh by the way we're gonna end on him having this like sexist bullshit like oh you came so close and you just couldn't do it couldn't couldn't pull it out so that yeah that sort of sums up sums up this film someday there will probably be another facebook movie that will be very different from this in 20 years or something but yeah, I mean, the thing is, I w- like while I was watching, it, I was just thinking like how many screenwriters have a screenplay about Mark Zuckerberg. It's like, what a waste of time. So many people will have <laughs> written one. They're just saying in Hollywood, like, yeah, I've just written this really great. I think it's really topical. And it's like, there will be one Mark Zuckerberg movie like in the next few years, probably. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to be written by someone famous again, because they're not going to be like, oh, here, let's pick one off the blacklist. Like, maybe that'll happen. But like, just put your screenplay in the shredder. Pick someone more obscure. (laughs) Oh, dear. All right. Well, that's it for the social network. So next week, we are going to be discussing uh, Labyrinth, the iconic film starring David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly, directed by Jim Henson, which was chosen by one of our Patreon subscribers. I have seen this movie one time during Hurricane Sandy, which was an interesting experience. I believe that you have seen it more than one time. Oh, indeed. impression I have. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So it's going to be very fun. Um, You should rewatch it if you have not 
done that recently. I assume most of you have seen this movie before. If you haven't, give it give it a watch. It's very fun. So yeah, we will be talking about that. We will. And if you are yearning for an Avengers Infinity War episode, that's a no. Morgan has elected to not watch this film. I saw it. I relatively enjoyed it, although I don't think it was particularly meaningful and lacked, you know, themes or character arcs. Um, uh, my review you can find on the Daily Dot. And, you know. Yeah, I apologize if you were all really looking forward to that. I just can't. We have so many Marvel and DC superhero movie episodes in the past that you can check back on and otherwise just listen to my professional expertise. Yes. Exactly. Um, And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to our Patreon, if you so desire, at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.